Good morning. I have a lot of paperwork up here. It takes me time. It's really been a blessing so far uh, at the at this conference. This topic, the means of grace, has been uh, enlightening, and I truly mean it's it's been a blessing. I haven't thought of that in the ways that it's it's been presented. But I have to be honest with you. Uh, this morning I'll be taking a few minutes to talk about the the Good Samaritan, and I was getting very nervous over doing it. I thought, oh boy, all this controversy going on here. Who knows what's going to happen when I finish this sermon? I told my wife last night, I said, it's quite a group. It's pretty tough. She said, well, what's been happening? I said, I don't know. I said, the guy goes up there, he gives a, a pretty good talk on, um, on the, from the theology committee, and the first question is, where'd you get that shirt? <laughs> I thought, another guy looked up there, and he, he gives, a, he gives two, three lists that he says he's going over twice, and he's not done with those lists yet. I told, I said, I don't know. I said, this is, this is, <laughs> I said, maybe I can get out of this somehow. But, um, the Lord, the Lord has me here. So, um, I will do my best not to create any type of controversy, which seems to be, uh, something of an expertise that I gift that I have. Uh, let's, let's open up in prayer. Dear, dear Heavenly Father, we, we, Thank you so much for being our God. We thank you that you have been so gracious to us. And we, we especially thank you for what we've been hearing about at the conference yesterday, uh, your means of grace. How special, um, how special they are. How central to our lives as Christians. How central to the church. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we have the time to just look at them and to study them and to contemplate and to put them in their proper perspective and to remind us of the centrality of your word. We ask that this morning that your Holy Spirit would prepare us to hear what you have to say to us, that by the time this evening is finished, that not only would we have been blessed, uh, but maybe we would be changed to become more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you once again for each other, for the fellowship of the saints, and for the fellowship we have in this association. And I ask, Father, that you be with me this morning as I take a few minutes to bring some points out of the, the Good Samaritan, and that by the time we're done with this also, we will have a better understanding, at least uh, I, I have, when uh, I look at my own ministry. We ask for your blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christian faith... The Christian faith is an active faith. It's also a concrete faith. It's one of the things I've learned as a pastor and someone who's been involved in different ministries over the year, that the Christian faith is a concrete faith. It's not a faith uh, just about the feelings. It's not a faith just about our intellect. It's not a faith about spiritualizing our existence the God of the Old Testament is a concrete God. He's the one who not only thought of the world, but he actually created the physical world itself. He physically delivered Israel from Egypt. He actually parted the Red Sea. God, in his covenant introduction to his people at Sinai, Sinai spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He's a God of history. He constantly talks about remembering his historical works. 
Christ was born to a physical woman, took on flesh, lived, died, rose from the grave. During his ministry, especially during in the, in the early years, he was very active in healing the sick, taking care of those who needed to be taken care of. The ministry of the Lord was a ministry that was concerned with both the soul and the body. Christ was concerned about the entire person, the whole person. This concreteness of our faith is seen in the words of James, where he says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Then he goes on and tells us, faith without works is actually dead. John puts it in these words. If anyone has the the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in the deed and truth. Today I would like to briefly look at what, what I think is one of the most concrete parables in the, in the New Testament, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. So if you just turn to Luke chapter 10, we will read through that, and I will try to, well, with limits of time, um, quickly go through this and draw a couple of points out for us. Verse 25, Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he, saw, when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The setting is pretty simple, don't you think? It's not complicated, it's not hard. Jesus, according to Luke 9.51, is on his way to Jerusalem. 
He just sent out the 72 disciples to go before him and to preach the gospel, to heal the sick and cast out demons. Telling the people in the villages about the coming of the kingdom, which was, which was there. came with Christ. So one of these villages, while Jesus was teaching an expert in the Old Testament, wanting to test Jesus, asked a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus being Jesus, once again, he counters it with another question. And remember, this is the lawyer, this is a theologian. This is not just an average person in the crowd. Jesus responds to that question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? What do you see there? The lawyer answered, answered by giving the summary of the law. Do you love God and do you love your neighbor? And Jesus says something very interesting to him. He says, you've answered correctly. And that's an important point. You answered correctly. But then the Lord goes on to say something even more interesting and important. He tells him, do this and you will live. The lawyer now realizing that he probably has himself a little bit of a pickle, a little bit of a problem, especially over this love issue towards the neighbor. Loving God was not a problem. The first table of law was not a problem. It's the second table that was the problem. And as we all know, we've studied this passage. The question is, how far does this go? Where are the limits on this? But loving that neighbor, as I said, was a different story. There surely must be some restrictions. Religious, cultural, ethnic, spiritual, self-responsibility, you name it. There must be restrictions somewhere here. Then he asked, then, the, then the lawyer asked the famous question, because he's trying to justify himself now. Because the real problem here is that this man is, is not living this. He's speaking it, but he's not living it. He says, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus once again answers back with a story. It's not a propositional statement, which most of us would like. He gives him a story, but a story is just full of teaching full of lessons, full of examples, full of life itself. This gives him a story where the rubber meets the road. And this is Jesus talking to a theologian, if you will. There are six people in the story, a man, at least six people, a man, robbers, minimum two, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, the innkeeper. In a broader context, you can also throw in there the lawyer. Well, the story is such. In summary, a man's traveling down Jericho Road, comes upon robbers, and, of course, he gets mugged. They strip him of his clothing. They beat him badly, to say the least. The robbers flee, leaving this poor guy half dead. Matter of fact, he appears to be dead. Jesus doesn't focus on the man who's been robbed and mugged for the most part. He focuses on the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan. But what's really interesting in the story is the two clergymen, if I can use that term. First one in verse 31 is a priest. He's traveling down a road, probably on his horse. He sees him, passes by on the other side. No one knows for sure, and he, he guesses all sorts of religious reasons, temple reasons, purity reasons. 
The Levite, his assistant, comes, follows him, comes along, and he does the same thing. But then comes the Samaritan. The text tells us he comes to the place, he saw him. He felt compassion, he felt sympathy. And then he does something the others don't do. He went to him. He goes over to him. He walks there, right by the man. Bounds him up. Touches him. Renders aid. Gives of expensive oil and wine to help heal his wounds. Then he gives up his own animal. Puts him on that animal so... He can get him somewhere where he can get some real help. Probably he had to walk, walk himself, the Samaritan. But put the man on the donkey. Goes to an inn, to a town, which I understand, probably would not have been friendly to a Samaritan. And he gives him two days' pay. Two days of his own pay for this man to stay overnight. See, he was concerned about this man's physical needs and his life. He was willing to give of himself and wherever he could financially to make sure that this man was taken care of properly. Jesus in verse 37 calls this doing mercy, if you will. This is what Jesus calls mercy. There are four important, there are four important points I'd just like to note out of this, out of this story. Pretty simple points, not difficult, not hard, obvious to everybody, has eyes to see. The story has to do with theology. It has to do with feelings. It has to do with the mind. And it has to do with action. Theology, of course, is the theological aspect of this story. The mind has to do with the fact that this man gave thought what he needed to do to help this man. He used his intellect. He used his brains, if you will. What someone said, Calvin used brainwaves, something like that. He used his brainwaves to, to, to uh, figure out what to do in response to him. And, of course, the most interesting part, as far as I was concerned, is the action part, the mercy part. Mercy is the one who acts. Mercy is the completion of love. It's the result of true compassion that leads to behavior. He personally sacrificed whatever he had to help this man. But this man was helpless and he was broken literally. True compassion, true feelings lead to action. Otherwise, it's empty. Is mercy the soul of compassion? Is mercy the soul of compassion? Without mercy, can we say compassion is dead? Without mercy, can we say that? There's a, there's a man in my church who had a motorcycle accident. I was talking to him about this the other day. As a matter of fact, I said he was a good example. He ran to the back of a van going 60 miles an hour. Uh, didn't see it. Didn't even hit the brakes. He was broken. And no one stopped by to help him. The only person who stayed was the man who had the van. He said, cars are flying right by, he said, within feet of my head. And nobody would stop. 
theology. We saw in the lawyer's response to the Lord's original question in verse 26-28, what is written in the law? What's interesting here, what's most interesting to me, is that he answered with correct theology. He gave the correct theological answer. He quoted the summary of the law. Jesus tells him, you have passed the theological exam. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And his theologian, of course, wanting to justify himself, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? How far do I actually have to go with this? Where are the limits of this obligation of love? And quite simply, my point is this. We can have a correct theology, but yet still be missing the point. We are to be doing theology. We are to be doing the love of Christ that we profess. John Calvin tells us the gospel is not a doctrine of tongue, but of life. Simple statement. Change my life. Change my theology. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. And it has to pervade our manners. In other words, it has to pervade our ethics. Has to has to go deep down in how we live and how we carry on and how we understand what God's called us to do as Christians. Calvin says an interesting statement here in relationship to this text. He says, "Man is made for man. The whole foundation and structure of holy living, living." Calvin says, "Was the service of God and love to man." In other words, there really isn't any true holiness. If we don't love our neighbor in the real way, in the real practical way. This, this conference is about the means of grace. And after Jim got done talking yesterday, I, I thought I should probably just scrap this because this really makes me nervous. Because I was going to say that at least in a broad way, God uses people as a means of grace. Broadly speaking, I realize it has its limits with the strict theological definition which we were given yesterday, which I agree with. I like that. I thought it was really a good talk. But there's also a broad meaning, a broad understanding, which was brought out last night. See, you and I are agents of grace to people in the world who are hurting in our congregations and even outside our congregations. We may be in certain points of a person's life, a certain period of a person's life, just what they need to hear God who is constantly speaking to him through natural revelation, through the preaching of the gospel, through witnessing of friends. God uses people. And he calls us to love our neighbor. As Calvin said, man was made, at least to a certain extent, for man. See, this is a practical theology. This is a parable about theology and practice. About Christianity and one's duty to become a neighbor towards the need. See, when this man went over to him, he was becoming a neighbor to that man that was half dead. 
And of course, that's the bottom line of this whole parable. Who are you becoming a neighbor to? Who are you actively seeking to be an agent of grace, if you will, to someone? Cotton Mather, in his diary, has a certain section where he was convicted of this and he would write out every morning things he was going to do in his neighborhood to reach out and to help people, no matter how small. There's a lady down the block, he would say, who's short on cash and she could probably use some extra bread. I think this morning I will go out and purchase some bread for her and bring it to her house. And every day he did this in his area. It just wasn't to his church. It was just two people in his area. I will point out also, and this is my controversial point. Now, don't throw me out of here and I say this. Because uh, I really am a nice guy. And, and I like you. And, and, and you can become a neighbor to me. By putting, right? um, but this. The thing that I noticed about this was that the religious leaders were not excused from this. The religious leaders were not excused from this. This is a command of Christ to all of us. As a matter of fact, he is addressing the religious leaders. He's addressing us in the priest and the Levite and the lawyer himself. See, the duties of the duties of our understanding of those duties, if you will, can sometimes become excuses for us to neglect the greater responsibilities as we read about Matthew 23, 23. You have neglected the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's a wonderful parable also about something important. It talks about the how of good theology. How do you do good theology? What does a good neighbor look like? It's about putting flesh and feet on the theology, on one's theology. He saw him. He had compassion. And he went to him. He did not pass by. He laid it on a line to help him. Because that's what God has done to us. But this is a parable about the characteristics and character of God being reflected in his people. The issue was to go. To go to these people. There's lots of, there's lots of around. The issue of abortion was mentioned yesterday. I am the product of a pastor reaching out in that area. I became a Christian through, quote, a crisis pregnancy. My wife and I were, I tell my kids, your mom and dad were idiots. Um, you know, we were getting married back in the 70s. My wife tells me one day that she, my girlfriend at the time, and we were, we were young, and yeah, we were idiots, I hate to say that, and she was pregnant. And uh, my sister said, you know, you need to go talk to my pastor. And I thought, you know, i got real problems. My father-in-law was a violent man. He became a Christian eventually, but he was a violent man. And I'm not exaggerating, this man probably was going to kill me. Um, matter of fact, <laughs> To show you, I'm not exaggerating. We finally told him that she was pregnant. He ended up being in the hospital. It's a long story. He ended up being in the hospital, which God's providence put him there. The day I was supposed to go tell him, he went in the hospital. Now, I was in the Marines. He was in the Navy. And so he was really into this stuff. And I went to the hospital to see him. 
And I told him that we're going to move the wedding date up. And he figured it out. He started screaming and yelling, Navy against the Marines, Navy against the Marines. I thought, <laughs> and he starts pulling all these wires out. He wanted to get at me. And I just become a Christian because I spoke to his pastor. And I'll tell you about that in a second. And what took place was they put him in psych ward for three days. And they said, my pre- they, can you imagine that? The doctor said my presence was irritating him. But anyway, <laughs> so that's, that's what they did. Well, I went to this pastor. See, I had real problems. And my sister, I go visit my pastor. And I went to go, I uh, said, you know, I got real problems. This guy's probably going to try to kill me or shoot her. Uh, he has a history of violence. He has guns over the, all over the house. Um, and what happened was, um, I'm going to lose my train of thought. I'm going to get through. I feel the pressure of time here. Um, he's, probably going to, he's probably going to end up doing violence here. And the pastor said, no, you need to go talk to him. You need to go tell him. My sister said, go see my pastor. I said, you know what? A pastor? You're the kid me. I, got, I wasn't a Christian. I got real problems here. She said, well, go see him. So I figured, right, I'll go see him. I made a point of this young pastor. And uh, I figured, well, I'll be an hour. I'll be out of there. I can just keep her quiet and keep everybody happy. And I can find a solution to my problem. This man sat down with me and he says to me, you know, you do know you're a sinner. I thought, oh, gee, here it goes. Um, and I said, yeah, I know. So no, you don't understand. You're a sinner. You must understand that. And uh, he went through the Ten Commandments one at a time and asked me how I was doing each one. When well, I got to the adultery part, at that point I realized, well, you know, he got me on that one. Um, but then what happened was that he said, you want God's help, Jim? And of course, well, like, who's going to say no to that? Right? I wasn't sure if there was a God at that moment, but I heard that offer. I said, of course. And he said, you want God's help? You must do things God's way. And he directed me through Scripture. I became a Christian that day. My, life, my wife, my girlfriend married a different man than she dated, which is a whole new story, which is funny. She did not become a Christian for a year later. The point of the story is, and I'm out of time here, the point of the story is simply this. We have to be there for people. And sometimes we may have to even get out of the office to go find these people. But they're there. We are told that throughout Scripture, not just Matthew 25, that we are called to feed the hungry. We're to give water to the thirsty. We are to reach out and care for the stranger. We're to clothe the naked. We're to care for and visit the sick and to visit the imprisoned. Paul tells us, let's not grow weary of doing good. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in a household of faith. Michael tells us true religion is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. James puts it this way, to visit orphans and widows in affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, this parable is a concrete demonstration on how, the how of becoming a neighbor to those in need. It's a picture of what the second great commandment looks like and how it works in our life and ministry. James 1.22 in closing says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Or shall I really be brave and bold and put it this way?
be doers of the word and not preachers only. Not putting down preaching as the primary function and focus. But don't let that be an excuse for not reaching out to those who need an agent of grace in their life. Amen.